Linda Blade, welcome to Gender Critical Story Hour. It's Esme here in Toronto. And Amy in Vancouver. Hi, everybody. Nice to be here. Always great to see you, Linda. Yeah, and thank you. Same. especially under such great circumstances with the launch of your new book, Unsporting, which um, we've got, woo, we've got our, I've got my, my, uh, my Kindle copy. Yeah. I understand. And I have mine. <laughs> my hard copy it just arrived the other day right. yesterday yeah yeah i had to even order it myself so i got it later than some people i had the kindle one right away though of course how many copies have you signed so far well i've signed uh probably about 10 okay mm. lots yeah. more to go then <laughs> lots to go <laughs> it's been pretty uh, amazing to watch all my friends and it really helps the 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 uh, few big accounts and a lot of smaller accounts and everybody in between on Twitter, everybody sending out the message really amplified. I think that's why I went to number one for that first day. Yeah, and it's just amazing to to see that and to see that we have a community. Um, in my background, we call it um, your core audience. You know, mm. so what you do, like yeah. we've been spending the last two years building a core audience right yeah and now yeah. And now we have it so that when you we do when you launch a book uh you know we do have like a whole bunch of people ready to devour it and i'm just so happy to see that that's amazing i think it's that but i also think that this issue is really coming into the public consciousness right now in a way that it really hasn't until this point in time so this seems for some like reason that's really true yeah yeah yeah, like it's mm -hmm. a perfect time to be launching these books and it's in, you're part of the trio of, um, <laughs> of recent book launches. Well, I'm very honored, actually. I couldn't even have imagined writing anything like this a year ago. So, I mean, I was only approached last June, just sort of after this time, but yeah, had no idea I would do this. We gave a little bit of sneak peek um, to your, your book when we had Barbara Kay on the show. Yes. And, oh, yes. <laughs> uh, we talked a little bit, and she was so excited about it. This has a, been a long time coming. Um, yes. And, and you and Barbara collaborated on it. You're the lead writer, and she sort of, as from what I understand, she was yeah. doing some editorial with you and sort of mm -hmm. um, some polish. Um, mm -hmm. And she's been so great as... Yeah. Uh, as a champion of of women in this sphere for so many years and so I'm sure it was a great pleasure for you to work with her well I couldn't it I just couldn't believe it because it was starting and even then in, uh, in 2019 Lisa I think you were the one who helped me connect with Barbara I was trying to figure out a way to write a uh, an op-ed in the uh, post-millennial, well, first I wanted to do it in Global Mail or National Post, and that wasn't happening. So post-millennial, and then you put me in touch with Barbara, and um, she helped me a little bit with that, well, quite a bit with that one. I mean, I had the raw materials as far as the basic argument, but she definitely helped me with the authorship in terms of giving me hints about how I could improve or say something a certain way. <clears throat> and it helped me a lot. And um, I, she says that, you know, she seemed like she thought that maybe I could write something more. So then she, she uh, obviously was talking to Ezra Levant 
with Rebel News, and she said, well, maybe this Coach Blade is the one to write the story about uh, the trans situation in sports and how that's getting out of control. And it's a hot topic, she felt, back then. And when she, when she contacted me, um, I was a little bit surprised. She says, will you be willing to write a book? I said, I can't do that on my own. She goes, well, I would, I would work with, uh, on it with you. And I mean, that was so huge. I mean, somebody of Barbara Kay's stature as a, as a journalist and just a long time in the field, being willing to take her time to mentor somebody like me who wasn't even a writer, really, through all this stuff and trying to pick my brain and get me to express myself. I mean, that's took a lot of effort and a lot of chance on her part. Um, and so I'm very grateful actually. That's amazing. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it, it has taken a while and then it got a little, um, a little stalled uh, yeah. because so many things are happening so quickly mm -hmm. uh, in the sphere of, gender criticism and legislation and policy and and then um tell us about that what what happened you, you were ready to go yeah. ready to yeah publish and I had virtually finished writing it in November um and then there was of course the regular editorial process and review they were going through I had one of the big things I'd done that I guess I wasn't told that I couldn't do it as I was going along, I was just taking pictures off the internet and just plastering the book with like pictures of Rachel McKinnon and all mm. these things that are going on. And so when they first got the manuscript, the full manuscript at the end of November, it's just like, eh, 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 eh. you can't do that. You can't bring in pictures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, oh, okay. Um, Copyright, yeah, clearances. Yeah, um, my bad. Um, <laughs> And so then, of course, if some pictures are taken out, sometimes you rely on a on an image to express a little bit more in depth what you kind of meant in the words. Mm -hmm. And yeah. and so when you take a photo out or an image out, and even I had some charts and graphs that were taken out that were not my own. When you take those out, you have to do a verbal description of what that's supposed to represent and what that means to you as part of the narrative. And so then I had to write a little bit more and then that was fine. I got that in. And then somewhere just around January, um, I'd even got it back from the main edit, uh, the main reviewer editor, the big, big editor that was very, very critical of everything and had to do some fixing. But that's when Biden's uh, inauguration happened. And uh, then down he comes with this executive order on switching the term sex with gender identity in all of us public law. And it was such a stab to the heart, seriously. And I thought there is no way, cause I was ready to hand in the book again. And there was just no way I was going to hand in this kind of a book without having to add a chapter on the executive order, what that means for title nine, because we all know that other than the international Olympic committee, what happens in the USA, dictates sport policy pretty much around the world. And so mm. <clears throat> even though Title IX is just uh, dealing with USA and the colleges and the schools, it will just spill out even more, like just that part of that cascade that happened when the International Olympic Committee changed its rules. And now, like, it, it was just so huge. Um, and so I felt, well, I really have to write a chapter on that. I can't, 
I did, I'd be embarrassed releasing this book now without a chapter on that. So then that went way into, you know, March or actually I finished in February, but then I had to do the audio book. Then there were some lags. Then, then I had a different cover and then the artist conceived of this cover, the new cover with the, uh, you know, I like it better actually. Um, the new cover. It's a great cover. With, it's a great yeah. cover. So then we were going through all these permutations about kind of what, what, the trans person should be wearing and what you know it was just oh, it was just like every little thing and meanwhile we're coming into may and it's just like oh this will never happen <laughs> i remember on some calls for for cosbar you being um very frustrated and uh... I, I was pretty frustrated sometimes <laughs> i have to say i didn't i yeah. didn't let it get to me too much but I, I felt like obviously i don't the main thing i kept thinking was obviously linda you don't know a damn thing about editing books <laughs> editing is yeah editing is the most time-consuming part of writing yeah yeah for sure yeah so you know live and learn it's a little embarrassing if i'd have known it was going to take this long i would never have even talked about it even into the new year because i mean it's just oh. i remember um douglas murray saying something about how he never he never breathes a word of his books until it's out yeah, and I can absolute absolutely see now why he does that. Yeah, yeah. But there's different approaches because look at um, Helen Joyce. I mean, she mm -hmm. announced when she was taking sabbatical. She said, "I'm taking yeah. sabbatical," and this was last. Well, this was what twenty. 2019, early 2020, when she said, "Yeah, um, she was uh, taking sabbatical." Mm -hmm to write a book on gender criticism mm -hmm. and that she'd be doing a tour a world mm -hmm. you know like coming over to to the to north america and she mm -hmm. got in touch with us and uh we were lucky enough to be able to meet with helen joyce and she interviewed us in toronto she interviewed did you did she meet amazing with in vancouver too did, amy did you get, get a chance yeah I, yeah i met with yeah. her in vancouver it, it was yeah. great yeah and yeah. and and so that that we were just so thrilled um mm. to be able to sit down with helen joyce and uh and she talked to a lot of people um in canada a lot of women and and men uh too and but what that did from the moment she announced it it, it created anticipation mm. and i think that's mm. just that's another strategy as well mm -hmm. i yeah. think all the no it can happen writers um preference and 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 how you feel about the work that you're doing and how you i don't know whether you feel that you don't want any of your energy to be you know dissipated dissipated yeah kind of thing you know it's yeah. kind of maybe similar to how you you know train as an athlete too yeah yeah you know you have to have you don't want to brag up right yeah you don't want to brag up the fact that you're feeling uh, like you're a superstar even though <laughs> you haven't started the race yet you know you're you feel like it's maybe going to go okay but you just don't want to talk about it too much in case something awful happens <laughs> but um yeah. but the um i have a funny story to tell you because helen i know exactly which week that helen came through canada because i was kind of following some of her tweets and some of the tweets you guys were uh various women across canada were posting and i was in the um I was coming back from seeing my parents. My parents have a winter home in, in Fort Lauderdale in Florida, Sunrise, Florida. And I was in Toronto International Airport on my return. 
And I saw that she says, well, I'm in Toronto International Airport going back to England. And so I sent her a DM on Twitter saying, um, Helen, actually, I'm in the same airport you are right now. And um, she goes, oh, what section are you in? And so it turns out she was on the big international wing and I was on the domestic flights wing. So there's no way we could see each other. It was too bad. But uh. so so I could see the British air or whatever flight she was saying, I could see it parked <laughs> on that wing. And I was on the other end, on the other terminal. So we were talking to each other. I knew she was over there and I was on here and we were just having a <laughs> nice little conversation. It was it was lovely. That's um, amazing. But we didn't literally get to see each two other. ships passing in the night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's literally, amazing. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it was kind of a cool little thing. I didn't see her personally, though. Nice. Well, we're that's another anticipated book, much anticipated. Absolutely. I can't wait to read it, yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. Oh, can you talk really about I I kind of want to get into the media coverage of the book. Do you want to talk about <laughs> what yes. kind of mainstream media has contacted you? Zero. Okay, so here's the thing. So this is actually, it's going to sound like I'm bellyaching, but it's actually really good news. Um, we launched the book. I mean, not we, but I mean, Rebel, Rebel News did on Friday, somewhere time in the afternoon. And by that evening, it was already number one in Canada. Okay. Congratulations. So mm -hmm. Thank you. Now, we were tweeting like crazy and a lot of, like you're saying, our base, our base was great. Um, and here's what I thought. Okay, so since that moment, there has been zero contact. Nobody's ever made an effort, whether through Athletics Alberta office or anybody that I know to try to reach me. I didn't know what to expect because I thought if they did reach me, it would all be kind of sort of angled towards a little bit of um, not hate, but, you know, just being a little bit grumpy about it. Um, and yet there's been nothing. So here's the thing I, I think is amazing. Um, I had a podcast interview yesterday. Now I have with, uh, with you two. It's not, it's not a lot of work. It's just very peaceful. Everything's quiet. And I think here's the thing that I, I, I le learned from this is that we don't need MSM to get our message out. If the book goes to number one and we haven't had a single bite from the regular quote big fish, then it doesn't matter. Like, when would I ever want to talk to them? It's, it's gone number one without them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, why do we need them? Yeah. They lie all the time. Yeah. They misconstrue everything. Yep. And the public it's doesn't a, trust them yeah. anyway. So if they interviewed me, they'd probably give it, you know, slant it with some other narrative. And then, oh, yeah. I'm sure they would call it hateful uh, if they covered it at all. And they probably would, <laughs> probably yeah. the CBC would publish without a quote from you if they yeah. covered it. Um, yeah. So yeah. the fact that they're quiet would actually actually means that it might be hitting a home run because they don't want to go near it. And yeah. And so to me, in any case, any way you look at it, um, the fact that there's been this sort of blackout is actually really good news, in my opinion, because it means that there's groundswell of, of people who really want to have this conversation are finding other ways yeah. to figure it out. Yeah, I think it means that they're scared that, <clears throat> that I think yeah. the CBC knows internally that not everyone yeah. who works there buys into their ideology and that, yeah. it, you know, that it, things are changing and they're just, they're gonna not 
touch this. Yeah. And further to the fear, I also, the timing couldn't have been more perfect because Friday and Saturday was also the annual general meeting of the National Track and Field, so Athletics Canada. And I know that my colleagues know what I say on Twitter. I know they know my position. I know they feel uncomfortable about it. I know some of them at least would have known that the book was out. And in all of those meetings, we were in there all day long, two days in a row. Nobody said a word. And so I know, so is that, you know, it's that thing where <laughs> somebody wears some awful thing to a party and everybody just acts like it's not there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so I, I kind of do know that they know and that they're feeling really afraid. And I've had actually some approach me and say outright, don't like not yesterday or this week, but it previously, please don't say you speak for us. So yeah. there's all this fear and somehow I'm hoping if nothing else that this book starts enough of a conversation where it cracks the ice. It's kind of like that, <laughs> you know, it's like the icebreaker where you just finally, everybody just starts talking. You don't have to all agree. At least we can just have this discussion without it being like the quiet, quiet elephant in the room. Yeah. I've spoken to so many people who feel that the sports issue is mm -hmm. the issue that will peak yeah. trends more people than anything else. It's so obvious. And if you can mm -hmm. see photos, it's the photos are such an incredible, <laughs> blatantly obvious example of how unfair things are um, yeah. and how absurd it is. Well, and that's also speaks to my sort of, um, learning curve. Cause at first I was a little bit disappointed that I couldn't have a lot of photos in my book. Um, but to be honest, to describe it, like when I'm describing Fallon Fox saying he cracked a woman's yeah. skull and, and he was happy about it. Or I think sometimes the human imagination can be more vivid. I mean, maybe the picture is an easy way out, like where you're not having to think through it. Um, yeah. And so I, I kind of came around to realizing, you know, I can actually, it might be better if instead of seeing a photo, they can actually think through and then they can go look up the photo um, yeah. on their own or whatever. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, it's just, it's, it, it turned out okay. I think it turned out okay. Yeah. Well, I think, the, I think of, the book is great. It, it, it reads very, very well and it, it just, it flows nicely. <laughs> And it's done Thank in you. layperson's language. Uh, it's yes. very clear. Um, it's very um, uh, artfully uh, uh, argued uh, mm -hmm. why that this is this is such a travesty. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think you should be very proud of it. Thank you. Yeah. You know, I I guess. I guess for me, it's also come through in a different way, uh, another evolution from when Barbara and I started out, the whole point was to target hockey dads and soccer moms kind of thing. Like, mm. it's almost like it was going to be a really thin sort of six chapter little magazine-y thing that you could pass around at some tournaments, you know, and it started out very colloquial, like very chatty and I mean, my, uh, the way I started was completely different than the way it ended up. And, and the thing is, as we went through time, I kept thinking in my mind, um, 
you're insulting their intelligence. You know, don't worry about putting in a chart. Don't worry about saying, here's the data. Um, maybe more people than just a coach or some mom or, I mean, not that I'm trying to say moms don't aren't smart or anything. It's just that when you're chatting with each other at the sidelines of a soccer tournament, there's a different level than sitting down and looking at really some stats and numbers. And um, so I guess I, as time went on, I just couldn't help myself. I felt like there was such amount of rich, there was rich um, information that I was leaving out. Um, so it did become a little more scientific. I can't help myself, I guess. It is more scientific than I thought it would be. Mm-hmm. Um, which also surprised Ezra, apparently, in his, uh, when he announced it on Friday, he said, oh, it's more scientific than I thought. Um, I don't think it's greatly scientific, but I mean, there's some obvious stats that I include in it. And um, I don't think you can yeah. get away, you could have gotten away without having the science. I think the science is, is very much a part of it because um, yeah. the, otherwise the argument is simply uh my feelings well it's not yeah. only feelings it's it's just uh the evidence of your eyes yeah <laughs> you yeah. know what i mean like yeah. everybody yeah. knows that on average men are stronger than women everybody yeah. knows yeah. that yeah. everybody knows it uh, yeah it's not controversial <laughs> True. No, it's not. Yeah. you know at all. And then you have the uh, Veronica Ivy, a formerly Rachel yeah. McKinnon, going <laughs> on, going in mainstream media and spouting yeah. blatant lies about the yeah. science. You know, mm-hmm. having no science background, and yet he just lies about the science of sport and the science mm-hmm. of transition and whether or not biological males have an example. So, yeah, you can't get away from the science when you have people who are so completely anti-science and yeah. just pro-lying for their own, for their own means um, out there pretending that they're on the side of science when they're not. And then it's so, it, it, he's so like, it's the, just the chicanery of it all. It's just like, yeah. you know, it's all sort of like tricks of the mind and, you know, he thinks that he's putting one over on everyone. It's, it's, it's so distasteful you know, the way, yeah. the way he goes about doing it. Yeah. Well, and as you see, chapter four is, um, is actually, so I, I talk about, you know, I introduced the concept and then I talk about fractures, fall, Talon Fox, some key issues, some key stories. And then I talk about sort of my journey into why, how I ran into this. And then when I, then when I go into the Zuby chapter where it talks about Zuby's joke on Twitter and how that just exploded and it actually showed us, how incredible this issue kind of played out in public. And then after that, so then, you know, in that chapter three, I talked about a number of cases like Cece Telfer and the boys from Connecticut. But then I felt like I did have to devote a chapter to McKinnon, which was chapter four, mm-hmm. which is the exemption from reason chapter, because I feel like, I don't know, I don't want to give them that kind of profile. But on the other hand, I think because, um, because he, he gets in, interviewed a lot um, across the board and he's the main spokesperson, seems to be profiling above and beyond. Um, I felt like I needed to, um, I needed to explore that a little bit more deeply. And um, 
I didn't come yeah. right out and say it, but I think there's a different level. There's a different level of um, insincerity going on with McKinnon, with McKinnon Ivy, because this person graduated with their PH, like they, they passed their PhD exam on how to lie and, and get by with it. And then the day after that, they transitioned almost like to prove their thesis. Yeah, and, and you're not joking. This is, this is actually what this person literally wrote a PhD thesis about getting away with lying. Yeah. So yeah. the key thing of the thesis, I mean, it, and, that, and <laughs> at the end of chapter four, basically I talk about that. It's like this person literally said, you know, their, their thesis literally is on norms of assertion, uh, why, why you don't need to know what you're talking about. Um, and basically the whole point of the thesis is basically to say, I'm going to put it in layman's terms. You can actually lie and it, and you can make it come true by changing the context. So you can state something that everyone would say is a lie, but if you, if you change enough minds around you and they affirm that lie, that becomes truth. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a framework for queer theory. That's exactly right. And so the, he comes out with this. He comes out with this. And two days later, literally two days was the day that they transitioned. Wow. Wow. So the other thing that I thought was interesting in that chapter, and I want to read an excerpt. Um, you, sure. you go sure. into the fact that um, um, McKinnon Ivy, uh, their... Uh, uh, performance uh, management review by their supervisor at the at the university was leaked, mm -hmm. and we and we yes. got a hold of it. <laughs> so so their their supervisor is a person by the name of Krasnov, and hmm. um, so th it, it, this is this is inter this is I'm quoting from your book here. Yeah. In other words, Krasnov is saying that while McKinnon Ivy has made many assertions about why males should be allowed to self-identify into women's sports. She has never followed up with an explanation as to the natural question that follows. If one's natal sex has no impact on one's ability, then why should sports be split along biological lines at all? If McKinnon Ivy does not have an answer to this pivotal question, she needs to offer a reason why there is no answer. And this trans woman has never come up with one. End mm -hmm. of quote. And I should note that in this, in your book, throughout, you make you make the note that when you use the word she, you use a little, little mark, Pat. a little accent to show that. And you have a, you actually at the beginning of the book, you have a I have a system, um, a system. I have a have system a, of lexicons for yeah. using pronouns. <laughs> so whenever, whenever it's a biological male who's transit transition to wanting to be perceived as a woman. Mm -hmm. um, you're for clarity. You're using she, but with a with a little a symbol, um, a circumflex, symbol. a circumflex symbol. Yeah, yeah. With it. So anyway, yeah. So but, when you read it out loud, like when I had to do my audiobook, yet yeah, it's not out yet. So how do I how do I um, signal a, 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 a the symbol when I'm speaking about mm -hmm. she? Mm -hmm. And you will note that every time I said she, I said true. She, I covered my mouth. <laughs> you covered your it. mouth. That's amazing. I, did. I said, she, 
Mm. So it sounds like he, mm. yeah, it's a perfect mm. in between. Mm. Um, for, uh, that's too I think that should, that should catch on. That's, that's, that's <laughs> yeah. brilliant. I, I like that. I'm abiding by Canadian law. I'm saying the pronoun, but I'm saying yeah. shoot. Just do it so, three octaves lower. Yeah. Shoot. Mm. Um, <laughs> I, it was funny because I'm sitting in my basement killing myself laughing. Like, how am I going to tell them? Um, and so, um, yeah, a friend of mine said, you better be ready to explain why you use pronouns. And I said, well, I use them in a very, my own original way, which apparently is fine by queer theory. So anyway, yeah. um, and so, <laughs> very valid. so very valid, right? And um, no, I mean, I just feel like, okay, we can say that, but they, we, there still has to be a distinction. Now, for the rest of this conversation, I identify as biological. And so from now on, anything I say about that other person is going to be biological pronouns from now on. So yeah. I'm going to call I'm for the sake of this interview. Um, mm -hmm. Pronouns are going to be he because he was born. He. Yeah. Is that fair? I'm, I'm, yeah, it is very fair. We yeah. do that. I mean, in our groups, mm -hmm. we do that. The, yeah. I was talking uh, not too long uh, about uh, having a conversation with a young person who yeah. is, um who who has you know um bought the queer theory and trans mm -hmm. ideology gender identity ideology and for the purposes of that conversation i was using yeah. the preferred pronouns right i mean because i because i just thought and it actually did work um because mm -hmm. we we're able to actually it didn't stop the flow of the conversation that that person mm -hmm. was able to receive my argument easier. It was like, it's like, it was yeah. sort of greased it a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And I was able, and I, because I was talking mm -hmm. about, um, I was bringing up Scott Nugent, Debbie Hayton, Buck mm -hmm. Angel and Miranda Yardley as, as examples of trans identified people who also believe mm -hmm. in biological reality. Right. Mm -hmm. And this person, yeah. this young person, had never heard of any of those conversations wow. before. Wow. Interesting. Right? Yeah. So. Well, yeah. I guess for me, I had I had a choice to make, and I didn't really want because there's there so much richness within the sports story itself that I didn't want my book to descend into pronouns arguments. So I right. figured, yeah, how do I how do I express a pronoun where I'm abiding by uh, whatever, you know, Bill C-16 or whatever, but by where I can, where that's not going to be an issue that people can hang their hat on. I'm going to use yeah. it, but I'm going to have my own form of it. Mm -hmm. And that way nobody can actually, I mean, it's, they can't say I didn't use it. Yeah. Was there any legal um, advice but given by your publisher about around no. this idea? Okay. No, it was just my choice. I knew that if anybody wanted to be a hater, that could be the first thing they say, and and they completely missed the point of the sports uh, and the bodies and the and the data. I mean, I didn't want it yeah. to get into a linguistic argument. Yeah, it is. It is just a distraction, basically, and it mm -hmm. is something like you said. People would just hang their hats on it. They mm -hmm. would ignore all of the content of your book and just say, wow, look at her. She's so mean. She's not using preferred pronouns. She's a bigot. Don't listen to anything else. <laughs> and it's funny you say hang your hat because I was thinking of the hat. I was thinking of how do I put a hat? So I just say, 
S-H-E, and then that little thing, and it looks like a little hat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It does. That's cute. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know. It's just, it, it's something I just thought I need to do some symbol. That's, that was my conclusion. Yeah. Just be, get us past this whole issue and talk about the sports. I thought right? that. I thought that was a pretty uh, ingenious way of doing it, you know, to, to really educate. good. Yeah. yeah. When I, when I saw <laughs> yeah. that, I was like, Oh, this is interesting. I, it's a nice approach, you know, because it is. Yeah. I'm reading um, Kathleen Stock's book, Material Girls right now. And yeah. she, you know, she just uses people's preferred pronouns throughout her book. And I, mm -hmm. I'm actually finding it confusing. <laughs> yeah. It does get where, confusing. That's why it, it has to be clarified. Yeah, it is. It, it is. It's like, I know who she's talking about. And then I'll see a she in it. And then in my head, I parse that as not because I'm just used to mm -hmm. thinking of people as their biological sex. So it does, mm -hmm. it, it does boggle me a little bit. Well, <laughs> and it gets particularly confusing. I knew it would because you get into the Canadian sports situation where all of the trends end up in the women's category. So if you're a male to female or female to male, everybody ends up in the women's category. Yeah. So yeah. how do we parse? And then, so if we're using she, 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 he, she, and we're all talking about women's sports, it was going to be almost impossible to write that story without yeah. having an identifier. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. And you, you do make that, uh, you do make that, that, that point in, um, I forget which, I think it's chapter, chapter six. six, chapter yeah. six. And here's a quote. Uh, no matter which direction is taken from male to woman or from female to man, one gets to play with the women where one's chances of success are optimized. Yeah. Magic. You always end up in the category where you're going to have the best chance of winning. Isn't that convenient? Oh, how lovely. Yeah. <laughs> Because yeah, and yeah, sports is about yeah optimizing your chances of winning, like because right. you're marginalized, yeah. right? Because exactly. The other the other really interesting um, thing about that I learned in the book is that this this actually goes back to 1996. Yeah, uh, beginning in '96, just as the Olympic Games had established themselves on a stable plateau of uh, equality of opportunity among the nations and between the biological sexes, a new ideology that focused on, quote, gender identity as opposed to biological sex began to spread through the Olympics governing body. So can mm -hmm. you tell us a little bit more about that? Because I just found that really fascinating that it was as early as 96. Well, it goes a lot earlier than that, even because I would say from its inception, women's sport in the Olympics has had this problem of males who either didn't know they were male or males who really knew they were just trying to cheat. And so there's this whole different ways that like this whole progression of methods and testing that was sort of attempted for women's sports mm -hmm. to keep women's sports safe and fair. And, you know, then you had a night, one of the Olympics in 1960, you had the naked parade where this, some of the female athletes had to parade in front of a, a panel of doctors to show they were women. Like, it, that's horrifying, obviously. It happened only one time in one of the Olympics. It was very brief, obviously, it was humiliating, and they stopped that right away. Um, and then they got into the 80s. When I was competing, they would, like, when I went to the Commonwealth Games, Pan Am Games, major games, you, you actually get a cheek swab. They take a Q-tip. 
They just put it inside your cheek, get some buccal cells. And then if it's a, if you're a woman and you're, you tend to have these little things called bar bodies, they show up there because you have two X chromosomes. One becomes inactive in each cell. So the, the, the one of the X chromosomes turns into a little ball and you can see them like as a spot on the test. So it was actually looking for bar bodies um, because it was just pretty rudimentary test. So it didn't have to look at specific genes. You just had a whole chromosome that was balled up. And so it looked like a little bar, like it's called a bar body. And so all through the eighties and early nineties, they were using the swab test. And lo and behold, in the Atlanta Olympics, um, which was 96, um, six of the athletes, oh, they finally decided, no, well, they're going to try the testing for the Y chromosome because they had a sophisticated enough blood sampling and genetic testing at that point. But it required a huge number of volunteers to collect the blood samples. It, it, it was very expensive. And then it took some time because the, while, the, while the technology was better, the technology still took a long time to look for a specific gene. Well, lo and behold, six of the athletes of, in the women's, of all the Olympic sports, six athletes were found to have the Y chromosome. And mm -hmm. so most of those had been either like these special intersex situations it, and the panels and the doctors, it was like such a big deal trying to figure out what to do with these, only these six people that the Olympic committee, I basically just gave, threw up their hands. They said, it's too expensive. Uh, takes too much work. We're just going to let, we're going to let people uh, identify into the opposite sex, but they, if we're going to do that, if a male is going to go into a woman's, into the women's sport, they have to have had a sex change, like a, the surgery. And that, their hope was that was going to be um, sort of the gate, the, the, the gate where very few people would go through that gate, mm -hmm. having to have the surgery. And um, let me just back up and say one thing. Also in the Atlanta Olympics, they had, uh, they conducted a survey of all the female athletes and enough, you know, quite a few, like hundreds of female athletes responded and 86 to 90% of the women, female athletes said they still wanted testing to keep the women's, um, the women's section fair. But in their 2000 report in nature, in nature magazine, the IOC claimed that it just, there wasn't enough support amongst the women for continued testing. I mean, they went against their own evidence that we, we still wanted to be tested. I never thought it was an imposition, but the intersectional feminists in sport who are trying to say we needed to get away from the humiliating testing, that is such a red herring because the humiliation happened in the 60s with that one time of the parades. It didn't happen when they were cheek swabbing us. We all, listen, it's way more humiliating to undergo a test. Like after you finish competing, you have to get that urine analysis test for like doping, mm -hmm. whether you're Thank taking you. testosterone. You literally have to have a nurse inside the cubicle with you watching you pee so that you're not, because the Russian women had like, they'd taken um, these bladders that were full of other people's urines yeah. and fill in. So it, there was so much cheating going on that they finally made us during our testing to have a person watching us. Tell me that isn't humiliating. I mean, that is the worst. Yeah. And when you're after a heptathlon, like I do, 
you're so dehydrated, you're, you're ready to go and you're, you're going to miss your flight, that you have to produce like something like this much water, this much urine for like the test. And so mm. you're sitting in there and then they were feeding athletes beer and it was quite a party in there. Like you had to just drink and drink and drink so that you could pee enough to get the test done in time so you go catch your flight. It was just madness. And so for these women to say, oh, oh, oh my goodness. It was so humiliating getting the cheek swab. And that those same women know that they'd have to sit in this cubicle with the nurse trying to pee for hours. Yeah. It, there, I don't, it's such a bad argument. It just doesn't work. But anyway, so the IOC then decides, oh, we just, they threw up their hands. No more testing, self-declare, but you do have to have your surgery. And then, so they went through that whole period of time in the knots, like 2002, 2010 or so where some people who actually had done the surgery, full gonadectomy, were trying to compete, but all of a sudden, lo and behold, surprise, surprise, a male that hasn't, has lost testes and has no testosterone, their body can't function at all. Like, those athletes were literally breaking down. And um, so they said, well, we still want to be in the women's division, but we can't even survive the training unless we have a little bit of testosterone. And so, <laughs> so yeah. they, they were allowed, they were seeking these exemptions to have a little bit of testosterone because of course, if you have a male body, your body is going to be completely parched of the need for testosterone because that's how males are, that's how a male body operates. And so instead of saying, instead of going the opposite way and saying, oh my gosh, you know, the IOC should have said, oh my gosh, that was a bad mistake. We can't allow, it's not ethical to have a guy and force them to have, like, have a complete transsexual involved in women's sport and then ha expect them to operate without testosterone. That was, that's very unhealthy to train without male levels of testosterone. So maybe these guys shouldn't be in the women's sports. Instead of going that way, they said, oh, of course they should be in the women's sports. Of course we should let them take testosterone. So then the only option they had left by 2015, I guess, is when they arrived at this conclusion. We'll just gender self-ID. Don't worry. You don't have to have surgery. Don't you worry. Just make sure you keep your hormones levels, you know, just a little bit under 10 nanomoles per liter, even though women can't have any more than two. Um, and we'll just call it a day, right? Like it's just, <laughs> just to see them progress towards this every single time, completely ignoring the data, ignoring the wishes yeah. of the women, ignoring the wishes and the reality of female athletes and just expecting mm -hmm. that somehow we're all just going to have to suck it up ladies. Yeah. Bend I, I want to ask. Yeah. Bend over. I want to ask about the emotional side. I know like my, I'm not a great athlete or anything, but my sport is running. I love long, di yeah. long distance running. And cool. I think often of how women weren't even able to compete in the Boston marathon until I think it was maybe 71 or it was some, at some point in the seventies. It was in the seventies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and just now that, you know, males can now self ID into the women's Boston marathon category. And I, yeah, it, I just, it devastates me to think about there was such a short period of time when women were actually allowed to fairly compete in that. Mm -hmm. Like how, how do you sometimes just feel like you're overcome with 
I, I have to actually, yeah, I mean, uh, I, it's going to sound like I'm changing the subject, but I'll, I'll say something very quickly and that'll help you understand. Um, I was sure. at a seminar with uh, one of the main sports psychologists from tennis, from the international tennis, uh, from Roland Garros in Paris. And he came here to, to Edmonton to do a seminar for the coaches, for tennis coaches and people like me. And he and I were having a little bit of a chit chat at the preliminary wine and cheese thing uh, reception before the big seminar was going to begin. And he goes, I have a question for you because I don't know the word when you have, like when people are in a tennis match and they're in the final uh, set and they're winning and then they start thinking, what if, what if, what if, and a lot of times people lose the match because they're so worried about making a mistake or what if I screw this up that, you know, they lose. So um, I, he says, I need to have a, a word in English that denotes having kind of like a wall where you have the thought, you have to think one thought where it stops all the bad thoughts. So he says, the only way to come out of that thing is to think a thought that makes all the what if thoughts go away. And so when I was dealing with this issue, so I told him, I said, well, the word has to be firewall, the firewall thought. Like mm. when the fire flames of doubt are coming through, you have to have a firewall. Something, you have to think one thing that takes your mind away from the what if questions or the, the things that make you afraid or angry. And so, you know, it came in handy, right? <laughs> the last three years, as I was dealing with this issue, there were times where I started feeling myself becoming so angry. I felt like I could put my fist through a wall. And I thought, oh, what's going to be my, my firewall thought? What's my <laughs> firewall thought? <laughs> and actually, really, my firewall thought is that I'm not going to, like, I'm just going to keep talking the truth, speaking the truth. I'm going to keep yeah. not letting people lie. And I, my firewall thought is the day that that rule ends, like that I'm going to keep working until that stops. And yeah. if I can keep focusing on that, I, I just, it helps me to not get overwhelmed with grief and anger about what's been happening. And the sheer, in, um, I want to say insanity, but it's actually disrespect. It's just so intense, yeah. the disrespect yeah. they have for women that it's, it's almost, it's hard to fathom. Like you talk about trans people like Rachel McKinnon saying, um, Oh, you're denying my existence. Oh. And um, when in fact, Everybody at the top of the IOC and all these people like the government of Canada and all these people that are putting out all these laws and rules that undermine our existence and don't, they don't think twice. Like no. the magnitude of what no. is happening to women, whether it's yeah. rapists in women's prisons, like the magnitude of what's happening to us is so much bigger than any small slight by a, of a pronoun like, it's just so insulting. It, it really, like, if yeah. I can see when I watch, when I watch Posey Parker, when I watch Kelly J, that is a thing that really, you could, it's palpable. Like, I watched her, her um, on YouTube today talking about how you're excluding women by including other people, like males in women's spaces. It doesn't matter. You're going to exclude women. You have to accept it. And when she gets that going, it's a thing to behold because it's exactly how we all feel inside yeah. that's yeah. why she resonates it's the casual yeah. disregard for women it's done yes. such casual just dismissal of women's concerns 
Mm-hmm. And this shoulder yeah. shrug, like, who cares? Yeah, like, like, oh, you guys why, will just take Why that. does that affect you? But, mm-hmm. but this whole idea of sport as a human right, well, it's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> like, it's not a human right. It's not a human right. No, so it's, no. it's a human right. You look, I have a human right. Here's my human right. To be able to leave my front door and run down the street mm-hmm. to get exercise. Sure. Or to hang out in the park or to yeah. use the tennis courts uh, that are publicly that my taxes pay for down at the end of the street or my mm-hmm. kid use a, a basketball court. That's that's mm-hmm. kind of a human right. You know, like everybody has a right to play, to enjoy, to move their body un- mm-hmm. unimpeded by the government. Like, for instance, yeah. right now we're on lockdowns and we can't. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's a human rights violation in my estimation mm-hmm. getting a ticket mm-hmm. getting a ticket yeah. when you go take your kid out to rollerblade in the by the by the state God. i mean that that's mm-hmm. that's a human yeah. violation okay but 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 ivy mckinnon saying the the whole premise is sport is a human right okay i don't okay let's let's look at it like this way i am disqualified from elite levels of competition by nature of the fact that my body will not allow me to get to that level. Like no matter right. how hard I try, I'm not, I'm never like, I was a good, I was a good downhill skier. You know, I, you know, I, I was a pretty good golfer, you know? Um, but I would, I know, I don't have the physicality um, to, mm-hmm. be able to be at the elite level. I just don't have the upper body strength. I don't have whatever. I don't have like the, the, my, I don't build muscle very well. It's, I was born that way. Right. So yeah. it just be that like by virtue of the fact that you were born in a male body, it disqualifies you. Absolutely. does. It would be no different than it. It disqualifies me from participating at the elite level. Mm-hmm. But, no one, but right? nobody, it's not my seen, human right to say, no Oh, seen... right. Yeah, nobody's being discriminated against. And that was what drove me insane about all of the online discourse about this Title IX stuff is that people are saying it's so wrong to ban trans people from sports. Nobody, zero people were banned from sports. That's right. No one, Mm -hmm. everyone could compete on the team of their biological sex. And it's just lies. It's just lies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and I would say if... If we accept the premise that sport is a human right, we don't have sports anymore because you know what the first thing's going to happen is any athlete then can say, it's my human right to be on first on the podium then. Like you can start saying whatever, if you can violate their rule of like categories, then you can violate any rule in between. Like what makes the person a winner? What makes the person a loser? Everybody's going to, I could just come along and I could jog through and lollygag and put, pick dandelions on my way on the Vancouver sun run and then say, I identify as the winner. Yeah. yeah. I win. Yeah. I get the medal, right? Like, like you have no sport. And then the other thing is, the other thing is these guys, and we all know this to be true, especially the autogynophiles who are the loudest voices in all of this. These are the men who are yelling the loudest about inclusion in women's sports and they are doing it. When we offer them a third category, they don't want it because they need to be affirmed. 
So the very fact that they insist that they must run with the women, no matter what other alternatives we offer, proves to me that it's a, it's, they're using women's sports as a form of, they're using women's sports as a form of social therapy. And yeah, that is the worst, like using sport for that is the worst premise for sport because sport is the realm, like you're saying, Lisa, and Amy, you've experienced this time and again, I'm sure we're even running, some people zoom past you. Uh, sport is a, is a realm of life where you hear no all the time. No, you didn't make the team. No, you didn't win the race. No, you're not team captain. No, you didn't make the trip. You hear mm-hmm. the world of sport, if there's one, if there's one consistency in the world of sport is, sorry, no. That's, I mean, and this is what really bugs me about all of this is that somehow we're supposed to say yes, 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 into a, a realm where we're always saying no to everybody else. And I mean, why can't they hear no and accept no for an answer? Because everybody yeah. else, every single one of us who's been through sports has heard no more often than you hear yes, because only one person mm-hmm. wins, only one team wins. The whole point of sport is one person hears yes and everybody else kind of hears no. And I mean, why then do we have to somehow baby, you know, somehow handle these people with kid gloves? Like somehow they're so precious and so fragile. And now we have to bring them into sport. Like that's the realm that's going to fix it. It's the realm of hearing no. And then secondly, I didn't follow up on Amy's point um, about the marathon and running distance running. The marathon women were in the Olympics for 84 years before they were allowed to do the marathon because the first woman, women participated in 1900. And finally in the Los Angeles Olympics in 1984, we finally were able to run the marathon. And why? Oh, because you had to study it and you had to make sure the women were safe and you had to make sure we were capable of running this kind of distance. Well, so what does that tell you? Anytime women want something, we have to negotiate, we have to beg, we have to plead, we have to lobby, we have to do all these things to get to the next level or to get a rule change for us, to, to benefit us. And all that took Joanna Harper, who is also a, a trans-identifying male from Canada, all it took was one trans-identifying male on the International Olympic Committee Medical Commission to get the rule change for all women in the world, one. And then they ask us what difference it makes if one is involved. Yeah. And with a, with a sample size of eight. Yeah. Like the study that, that (sighs) the stupid study was a sample size of eight, but even just the fact that that one person was on the commission saying what they were saying made it all happen. Yeah. With a stupid study. Yeah. It it speaks to the blatant, blatant disregard. I need a firewall thought quickly here. Yeah. 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 (laughs) too. I also, I just want to interject maybe for some listeners who don't know the autogynephilia. Um, yes, please explain. Know, we were getting more listeners who are, are not intimately familiar with all of these things. Uh, AGP or autogynephilia is kind of, it represents a subset of the transgender population. Usually these are the ones that are the trans activists and the, and the loudest, as you said, and mm-hmm. so this type of trans person is a heterosexual male that usually transitions in their 40s. Um, and it, this is actually a sexual fetish where they, 
the sexual pleasure is from people literally thinking of them as female. And that's why this validation of them as literal females is so important. And that I think is why they're so invested in trampling women's rights is because they need that in order to, to, you know, to, to get this buy-in into the fetish, which is their entire purpose for transitioning. Mm -hmm. Um, So not all trans people fit that category, but those, those are, pretty much most of the trans activists. Um, yeah. Um, and then and they're I also very just aggressive. They about their running. They're, yeah. they're very aggressive often. Yeah, they're, it's, they certainly do not represent most trans people. They're often kind of right. the nastiest, uh, yeah, awful ones. Um, yeah, in terms of running, there was this one time, this was years ago with my, <laughs> my ex-husband who is like not into sports or anything. And one time wanted to run a 5k with me, zero training, not physically fit, not athletic in any way. And it's like, Mm -hmm. I could go out and run 15k, no problem. So he he runs a 5k with me and basically can't even run the entire way. He has to walk for periods and then like sprints. He beat my 5k time. It made me so, so (laughs) mad. And I'm like, that's just, it's because you're a male. Mm-hmm. And it, mm-hmm. I think about that when I think about sports too. I'm like, it's such yeah. bullshit. Like, men it is bullshit. Yeah. Advantage. It's so obvious. It's, it's so obvious to me as a coach. I mean, I'm with them all day long. I see, I see the guys out there. I have men and women training. Of course, the thing, the thing is, back to the American schools policy and these trans, you know, this whole ma- narrative that you're banning trans kids. All they're doing is saying you have to compete in the right sex category. In the meantime, most sports, like I know when I was in track and field, I was in Abbotsford Track Club uh, in high school, and then I got into the NCAA. We always train together. We always, you know, in this, in the, in the thing, like I saw somebody arguing, oh, we spar together. So what's your problem? No. Yeah. Training, training. We all find ways to train together. Like my coach in Abbotsford used to say, okay, we had this hill that was about 70 meters. You know, it was a big, big steep hill. We had to do hill sprints. And he'd give the boy, he'd give the girls, us, about a 15-meter head start and then say, okay, boys, chase them down. And so, like, that really, like, the adrenaline of just having people, you want to beat them to the top of the hill before they catch you. You want to prove those guys that, that the distance that the coach picked yeah. between the two of you that that was that was too small or too too sorry too big for them they needed so it is great like it's a great way to say look you get started and these guys are going to catch up and we're going to see who wins at the end of course like we train together all the time it's fully inclusive so this idea that somehow you can't spar together or somehow the other way oh we all spar and train together so that's going to be okay to keep them in your competition like no we would never think as a coach it would be the most irresponsible thing for me to say like since you guys are all training and you know jumping taking turns jump in the long jump pit in the sand now we're going to go ahead and start measuring and now you're going to be competing with each other well that's ridiculous like the guys are going to beat the girls every time and if they don't doesn't matter it's inappropriate they're different bodies different category so it's just dumb it's just dumb it is yeah actually i know some males that uh, do jujitsu as well. And they will yeah. spar with females, but they, and they tell me that it's great practice because they have to 
subdue themselves and subdue their physical strength and focus more mm-hmm. on, um, on the skill on like the actual skill versus yeah. their strength. Um, so exactly. that is why they like to spar with females. Sure. Yeah. And, and, uh, and this it, skill and strength are two different things for sure. But when you go to compete, you put it all on the line. They all combine now into one big package. It's a completely different story. Yeah. And that's all yeah. we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So unfair. So I don't have yeah. either of you heard of um, uh, going back to Fallon Fox. It was either Nova Scotia or New Brunswick that in their education um, package for elementary school children about gender identity, there was a page about Fallon Fox. Um, there, so there's a child at home watching TV with their father and their father yeah. in this example, it says, you know, the father says, well, that's not fair. That's a man fighting a woman and then Mm -hmm. it's a multiple choice question about how to respond and essentially it's telling the children that they should be reporting their parents to the (gasps) to the state for being transphobic no no i can't believe that did that happen yeah i'll send it to you (laughs) it happened i'll send it to you it's crazy oh good heavens that is just the worst kind of Oh, that is the worst kind of cultish behavior I've ever seen. I mean, especially with this behavior, because he really was a man cracking a woman's skull. And if, yeah. if, if you teach yeah, a school it's... child, that's okay. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Can you imagine how girls would feel about that? I can't just, even imagine. Just so no wonder no girls want to be turning yeah. into women. Can't blame them. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah, Honestly. it's just, there's a kind of an erosion on different levels of, stand, you know, different standards on different levels. Like, there's this one, like, yeah. like of course, when we were growing up, Linda, it was like, um, you boys were taught you don't hit a girl. You do not right. lay your hands on a girl, right? right. I don't know right. whether that's being taught to boys anymore. I don't know whether like in the school system and well, how like could that. it be if boys and girls don't mean like, if those words don't mean anything, how could they possibly teach them that? Exactly. It's being taken. So, so there's, there's that, there's that whole thing. I mean, that, that was, that was boys took that very, very seriously when sure, we were growing sure. up. Yeah. There was a respect there for sure. And you don't hurt a girl. I mean, like yeah. if, if you were brought up properly, you just knew like that, you don't, mm-hmm. you don't lay your hands on a girl. Okay. Yeah. So that yeah. that's one. Okay. Yeah. So now we have porn and BDSM and choking and all this kind of stuff, right? So that so the kids are are, are floating in this this horrible milieu of that going Ugh. on, and porn yeah. is being uh, accessed by children eleven years old. Apparently, that's like the the average first encounter with porn online. It's it's wow. it's it's, it's, it's shocking the other thing is is, so you you combine that with okay there's no respect for girls and women and and the fact that boys are stronger than girls and should not be you know wrestling with the girls and hurting them you get that Mm -hmm. and then and then you combine that with everybody gets a prize yes right oh my kids hated that, you know, when we were in elementary, when my kids were in elementary school in the mid 2000s, um, 
you know, the green ribbon, the dreaded green ribbon. Oh, ah, the participation <laughs> ribbon. Nobody cares. Nobody wants that. Stop. It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. And kids are, are way more, uh, way smarter than you give them. Yep. When, when we give them credit <laughs> for, because my, when my son was doing Taekwondo, um, and at the, at the dojo, he, he had it kind of figured out very, very quickly. And he was looking at the testing that was going on. So periodically every month there would be testing for belts and everything. And he'd yeah. say, Oh, I see these young and they were, mainly girls but there were some boys too who were progressing very very rapidly and yeah. they were like up to like black belt and and you're like wow I couldn't even I couldn't even figure out why they would be considered black belt because to me black belt is like this is some kind this of is skill serious. level right yeah, yeah. and and mm. um he's he said to me mom I, I get, I get what's going on here. There's, there, it's a racket. Like, and my son was 12 years old. He'd figured it out already. <laughs> he figured it out. <laughs> he says, they just wanted people to pay for the next brilliant. belt. Exactly. Every time you got, got mm -hmm. tested, you yeah. had to pay master yep. for the, mm -hmm. the testing, right? He goes, so he's just testing them and, and, and waving them through. Yeah. And then shortly thereafter, he lost yeah. respect and then he didn't want to go mm -hmm. do Taekwondo anymore. Well, and there you go, bingo, you lost the meaning. You lose the meaning. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's yeah. why girls would walk away. It's not even, okay, a lot of girls will walk away because of safety. A lot of girls will walk away because they feel uncomfortable. But the main reason women would walk away is because it's lost its meaning. Why would you compete in yeah. something where it doesn't mean anything whether you win or lose? Yeah. That's, that's the crux yeah. of it right I, there. I, yeah. Mm -hmm. It is. And I, I also see a lot of people online arguing about the upcoming Olympics saying, well, the women should just refuse to compete. Mm -hmm. And then I, yeah. I've also heard some female athletes saying uh, they're like, you can understand why people would reach that conclusion, but you also have to understand that there's a short time frame when someone would be competitive enough Narrow to compete window. in the Olympics. <clears throat> it's, it's so yeah. unfair for them to miss out on that. So why, yeah. why should they not compete? Because that's their so, one chance that's and the they worked so hard. I, I think that would be the nuclear option. I always see that as a nuclear option. Like when all else is lost, go ahead and boycott. Because what else? I mean, it's going to get to that. See, I think the female athletes will be the judge of that. When, if it gets to the point where so many will invade women's sports, that it is all men on the podium, all male bodies, um, half the field are males, there's going to reach a tipping point where all the women will just see, look, there's no point to this anymore. And then they'll boycott because then there's nothing to lose. They've already, they've got nothing anyway, but for right now, it's too early for them because they have worked hard. They've sacrificed. Some women have lost their marriages because they're trying to train. I mean, it's just, you put it all on the line and now you're just supposed to sit out, and just let these, you know, just let everything happen without you. Like after you've trained all this time, it, it, it's really difficult. It's a difficult decision. I know it's easy for people on the sidelines to say, well, just don't do it. But, but you've come this far and now they're relying on people like me who are now I had my turn. Now I'm in a position of authority somewhat. I'm not at the top of Canada, but I'm top of a province, provincial branch. 
and I don't, I'm not autocratic. I mean, obviously it's my board that has to, you know, we all work together on the policy, but I'm just saying that it's people at the level that I'm at now or above where our job is to set the parameters of sport to keep it safe. First of all, the, 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 the hierarchy of, of needs has to be safety first, then fairness, and then maybe lastly, maybe inclusion. But I mean, female inclusion matters is the only thing that matters in women's sports. So inclusion in that sense means do we make a bigger team? Because right now in Canada, of course, because of COVID and the cost and everything, the national team coach has to decide how many athletes is going to let on that team. So even amongst the women, who do you take and who do you leave behind? So the inclusion has to expand for women when you're making that decision. It can't be part, all of a sudden a man has to go in there and be part of that equation. It just, it's just so not appropriate. Yeah. I honestly, thank God you're doing the work that you're doing. It just, like I, I'm almost in tears right now because who there's, who, there's no one else nice. for Canadian yeah. female athletes. Yeah. It well, just, yeah. Thank you. I know a lot of them agree with me, but it's just getting them to say it in the meeting or getting them to admit it. Right. Like just getting, I think they're so worried about losing funding, right? Like so worried because if you don't have the funding, you don't have sport. Well, I kind of disagree with that in a way. If, if they withdrew all funding, there'd be some athletes, some coach, somewhere training to compete with another athlete coach. So there were, there would still be stuff going on, but I get it. I mean, it would happen in a much more rudimentary way. We can't lose our funding, but at the same time, they're only listening to the governing body that's telling them that their funding is predicated on accepting this, which is the Canadian Center for Ethics and Sport, which is the anti-doping agency. Sport Canada never said that. Sport Canada is our funding agency. I know for a fact, Sport Canada does not demand that we subscribe to this ideology to get our funding yet. But I was also told... Yeah. By, by the people, the activists who are pushing the agenda in sport in Canada that I said, I called up the, the CEO of CCES, the Canadian Center for Ethics and Sport, in 2018 when I found out about this policy, policy and I said to Paul, I said, well, is this a law or is this something you strongly recommend? And he at that time, because I was completely blown away, I didn't know anything in those days. And he goes, well, it's not a law yet, but we strongly recommend. So when he said yet, that put the fear of God into me. I thought, that's when I started speaking out. That's when I got to Twitter. I just thought, you know what? If, if we don't speak up now, this is going to become the law in Canada. Who knows how much time I have? Do I have a year? Do I have three years? What do we got? Because the minute this becomes law to compel women to compete with men, to compete with males, the minute that becomes the law in Canada, I'm out. I'm out. Yeah. Seriously, I'm out. I'm not coaching it. That's why I said this is the hill I die on. I can't be in sport anymore if this is going to become the law. Because it is yeah. not sport. It's just beating women up. So yeah. it's, I can't but take let's, it. Let's clarify. It, it, is, it is not the law because it's not. Um, no. It is. It is. It's, it's, in, it's human it's human right. It's in the human rights code now, federally. It has been for, uh, provincially, okay. right? But it's not, yeah. it's not a charter. It's not a protected charter characteristic. 
right? Can Gender I explain? identity. So yeah, yeah, and how it how it interfaces with sports. Yes. It's gonna be here's what's happening. It's the same thing as we noticed happening in the prisons. So our parliamentary, you know, our our wonderful politicians who never think this through, they didn't do the GBA, they didn't do anything. So they they instantiate Bill C sixteen, okay? says you can't discriminate on the basis of gender identity or gender expression, which basically, in my opinion, you can't bully on that basis. Like, I'm fine. Like human rights, that's fine. But it's the middle managers. It's like the bureaucrats and all of these people, like people in my position, who then take that law and interpret it incorrectly to force a rapist into a woman's prison or force a male into a woman's sport. So they're, they're, they're taking Bill C-16 and it's the way they're interpreting it Mm-hmm. That is causing, that is yes. causing the problem. It right. doesn't mean I, I can say like because I'm strong on this. I can say no, that's, that's not the law. Just because Bill C Bill C sixteen exists does not does not in any way mean that I have to put a male into a female sport. It means I might have to be doing something extra within their own category to not bully them. Whatever, mm. but I don't think it means that I have to interpret it this particular way in this particular realm of life. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the unfortunate thing is all of these intricacies need to, it's like some, they're, they're going to end up in the human rights tribunals and then the, the judgments from human rights tribunals might inform judicial cases. And it's like, this all has to go through the courts and people have to suffer as it's working yeah. The process. That's it. Um, we did yeah, identify but- when we when we launched Cosbar in in our very first um, press release that we mm-hmm. were concerned about the overinterpretation of C sixteen right. because it's not it's not a charter. And so, if you're right, Linda, it's like it happens in all areas of public life. The middle manager is overzealous. They just really want right. to. Uh, be uh, seen as woke, as, you know, progressive, as Mm -hmm. sophisticated, as kind, as, you know, you name it, right? Well, that takes me to the end of the book, because in the, in the appendix number, um, number three, we have the, um, the Fair Play for Women chart, where it shows the exemptions in UK law. So if you're going to have a law about gender identity, you better explicitly state the exemptions that protect women and girls. And Canadian politicians could quickly and easily adopt these exemptions, like the exemption for competitive sports. It is lawful to exclude people born male from women-only sporting events. It says it right here in the British exemptions for law, for their um, the single-sex spaces and services exemption in, in right. the UK equality law. So how dare our Canadian politicians pass a law without explicitly stating the exemptions that will keep women safe within that, within that diet, that, that paradigm. Mm-hmm. You put in a new paradigm, yeah. but you give people an exemption. This hasn't been attempted. That's yet. what I'm saying. If we're going right? to keep this bill C-16. Right. Yes. We haven't, nobody's attempted to put the, the exe- Yeah. So we need to attempt that. We need to put get the that exemptions going. Right? in our law. Right. Okay. Well, and people, like, in terms of going to, because I'm in Vancouver, and Vancouver Rape Relief and Women's Shelter is here, and they have won in the Supreme Court of Canada the right to discriminate on the basis of sex in their uh, their rape shelter, 
but right. you, and then you just see in Vancouver, like the city council, they don't care. They took away funding. Mm-hmm. The trans activists, they just lie about the ruling and say, you know, well, now there's this new human rights law. They're not allowed to do that. And it's like, actually, the Supreme Court of Canada said that, yes, they are allowed to discriminate on the basis of sex because sex is a protected characteristic. Um, right. But we have to be able to say it strongly. And yeah. I don't know how that yeah. happens. How do we do that where we assert our legal right, our charter rights, and somehow they shrug their shoulders and act like it's irrelevant? How is that? Where, yeah. How do we come to that point? It, it requires a charter challenge. I mean, we just keep mm-hmm. coming back to that, right? And charter, a charter right. challenge costs, from what we understand, a quarter of a million dollars to mount a charter challenge. Really? So again, wow. women are at a disadvantage based on, um, you know, financials as well. Do you know what I mean? Like, right. like how, right. how do, where does the money come from? I mean, thankfully we have the um, Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, which is a mm-hmm. f- very good friend to Amy and other of our associates oh, that right. we know. Um, <laughs> yeah, but um, but a, a, what, from what we understand is that for a really full-blown charter challenge to, to, take case, the, to take place, the right case has to be presented. And the JCCF will, 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 will gladly do that, but it has to be the right one with a very, very high probability of success. Because you only so, get, strategically, you only get one chance at it, right? But that's so bizarre because we already have the right. And I don't get why we have to challenge something that's already our right. I, don't, a, I guess I don't see, understand a, the law. Me neither. That's a great question. It's, yeah. I mean, it's the idea of competing rights. Um, and yeah, it's like but, you have to hash it out in, in, uh, in the courts to figure out you yeah. know, who's, who's will prevail. Because I, well, I don't have faith that we're going to repeal C-16 or remove gender no. identity and gender expression from human rights uh, codes or anything. So and, I feel like it's just going to be an uphill battle. But nor should we like, I, I don't see why if we say you can't bully someone on the basis of their expression, I'm expressing as a woman. I mean, it's, it's literally denying my gender expression to have a, a man in a competition with me. Why is it, why is the gender expression of a male more important than my gender expression? The very fact that a male comes into my race, you're violating my gender expression. So even that's a competition of rights in a sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, yeah. I don't want gender expression to be removed in terms of, oh, now you're, it's a free for all. You're allowed to bully on the basis of gender expression and, and gender identity. No, but if you're going to have it, then you have to put in the parameters of what you mean. And that's, that's really the only thing. Mm. I guess the way I conceptualize it is I just think sex covers all of this, whether you're, your right. sex is male, but you're a feminine male you should be protected from discrimination uh, from being a male who isn't a typical Mm -hmm. male. Like I, I personally don't see the point of having gender identity and expression in any of these codes. I just think it confuses things. Yeah. Yeah, Well, it has become very confusing and maybe if it did that and if they recognize that they could repeal it, but if they're not going to repeal it, then please, please, can we have exemptions? I think, if somebody yeah. would say, like, as part of their, their election platform, we're just going to clarify what this means. We're going to have exemptions in law. I mean, oh, my goodness, I think people would go for that. 
That's the People's Party of Canada. They're the only ones. they've said? <laughs> yeah. They're the only ones that, that, that Maxime Bernier is the only one who, who understands what a woman is. Yeah, that's sad, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's ha- good for him, but I'm saying it's sad about I know. the rest of the parties. It's sad for the rest of the parties, and it's sad for, I mean, even the Conservative the Party. CDC. Like, wow. Yeah. It's shocking to me because I ran once a long time ago. <laughs> Yeah, in Edmonton, Strathcona, for uh, at the nomination race for the CPC for the federal riding, uh, didn't win. Mm-hmm. Uh, another yeah. conservative beanie, um, but I, he beat me by three votes. I never knew what I was doing, oh. but uh, yeah, um, but at which know, it really it really bothers me that the conservative party has become liberal light, and I've I've never voted conservative, yeah. but like what I I I have a lot of friends and family who are conservative. I have friends and family right across the political spectrum, all the way from commies to, you know, conservatives. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I love them all because I love diversity of thought. Um, But yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Diversity hashtag. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But the conservatives, it's like, come on guys, you have one job. To be conservative, I, to conserve, yeah. to, 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 to hold up tradition. You have, that's your only job. That's your Charter, only reason for existing, <laughs> you know, and you can't even yeah, do that. Say, that is, I did not see that coming. I did not see what the conservative party has done in the last three no. and four, three and four years in terms of yeah. embracing identity politics. I really never, yeah. I did not expect that. Why do you think it's it happens? Why did that happen? Uh, maybe they're just afraid. Maybe they're afraid that they will lose any chance of of, of winning another minority government. I, I don't know. Just like identity politics have taken such a hold over our culture. Maybe it's just fear-based. It's fear-based. I believe that they're absolutely terrified because they were on the wrong side of history on the marriage equality issue. Um, gay rights. Yep. And they they had to eat crow. And mm-hmm. they had to, you know, recant what they said. And, and now with um, the stranglehold that, um, that identity politics has, it, it's coming out of academia, that then all of those, those brainwashed kids uh, graduated and went into policy jobs and everything. And it's just so infused uh, throughout mm-hmm. all of government, throughout the total public... Um, sector um and then and then and now even the corporate world has has now embraced all of this identity politics and there's conservatives are surrounded by it and they're just like like it's coming from the corporate it's coming from big government it's coming all over and they're just like oh well i guess in order not to be seen as (laughs) (laughs) neo-nazis <laughs> but they're turning into Nazis on the other side because it's the Nazi guy people that want to burn my book, right? Like they have left. So, so I mean, the thing is, is just so it's so frustrating, disheartening because, um, you know, part of what I always felt like as a conservative, and I've been told now by many of my feminist friends, this is like a complete misconception. But my conception of conservatism when I was running, it was like one of the key things is personal responsibility. And of, of course, that meant, you know, fiscal responsibility and just being sort of very, very responsible. And, the, and people, of course, say, well, why would you think liberals or NDP aren't responsible? But 
I just feel like it's really important to be responsible. Um, so it's not only about my rights, but it's also my, my responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And, and I just feel like um, it is disappointing that they're letting some sort of irrational, irresponsible um, ideology just take over and not stand their ground. It's so disappointing. Mm -hmm. But yeah. we're, we're getting the word out. It's got to mm. come from the grassroots. Th yeah. This is what I maintain. And this is, and this is why your book is so important, Linda. And we'll, we're going to, we're coming to the end of our time here. And so we can yeah. sort of, sort of wrap it been up. Fun. But, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's been great. Oh, it's always, great. <laughs> always great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, we, I personally believe that we can write letters and have meetings mm -hmm. with politicians, but we're not, we're not going to move the dial that way. The way we're mm -hmm. moving the dial is through public education and mm -hmm. how I always talk about having one conversation at a time. So if you, mm -hmm. if you're constantly meeting new people and you're having the conversations and bringing it up and like, Hey, did you know this? You know, and you don't even have to be militant about it. I mean, right. So much mm -hmm. of this is so absurd that it can just be light, you know, chit chat conversation. Hey, did you know? Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. it can spin off into really interesting places. And, you know, because I think that this is the one issue that can unite um, people from every walk of life from have to believe it. It, yeah. it's material biological reality we can mm -hmm. all agree on yeah. that we can agree on gravity yeah. we can agree that the Not sun hateful. comes up in the you know in the east we can we can agree on all kinds of different things including that humans are sexually dimorphic species and yeah. men on average are bigger faster stronger than women well just yeah. remember that embedded in the yeah sorry go ahead amy Oh, sorry. I, I can't tell you how many times in the last few weeks I've said the sentence, uh, have you heard of Laurel Hubbard? <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's a good opener, right? It's perfect. It's perfect. Well, and yeah. the very and coming full circle, like the very fact that so many would buy the book so quickly, the, the hunger to, to read something about it uh, tells us a lot. Of course, as we said, like contrary to, to uh, mainstream media not caring at all. But I will actually also finish with one thought. When you say sexually dimorphic, dimorphism, morph, morphology is embedded in the middle of dimorphism, right? Morphology. Morphology means design. So the way our bodies are designed, it's like you look around your neighborhood, one house is designed completely different than another house. So it's a design. So it's not even a matter of whether there's, like in this case, there is a huge advantage if you're a male athlete. But the very fact that they're designed differently, um, you know, that why I often use the analogy and I know Emma Hilton and Ross Tucker aren't that keen on it but I you know a Formula One car versus a stock car you would never put a Formula One car in a stock car race because they're two different designs it doesn't even matter people go nuts because it, it if you put one type of vehicle into another race what's the meaning anymore if a Formula One car beats a bunch of stock cars it wouldn't matter like what what are you what's the meaning of that race you're you're actually competing on a with a different design model in that race than the other designs. So morphology, yeah. it's, it's, you know, we can go on and go blue in the face talking about, oh, strength is 60% more and, you know, running and 10% more. And 
No, but the point is it's morphology. It's, it's actually the full three-dimensional design. It's the three-dimensional de mm-hmm. design of the, all of the factors to put together is a completely different design. And that's why you have to have them in different categories. It's the totality of the, not just the um, Right, it's, it's the whole totality of that right. design. So, well, you could say like, oh, the two houses, I have two houses in the neighborhood. If the doorways are the same height, that means the two houses are exactly the same. Right. Basically, yeah. that's their argument for human individual variables. Or here's that's another Rachel, one. Here's yeah. another analogy. I have two houses and I both keep them at 21 Celsius. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so they're, they're, that means they're all the same design. They're, like, they're the, it, means they're the, it means they're equal if, if I keep the temperatures at 21 Celsius. Yeah, so they... They should be, they should cost the same when you sell them on the marketplace. They're all exactly the same house because you kept them the same temperature. Like that's (laughs) Rachel McKinnon. That's McKinnon Ivy's. Basically that's the argument in a nutshell. Yeah. One dimensional factor supposed to represent the whole 3d design. But I mean, Rachel uses height overlap or some other, they always take one feature of the human body and overlap them. This is if that means anything about the whole morphology. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Linda, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Can, can you tell <laughs> our listeners fun. how they can get their hands on your book? Unsporting.com. Unsporting.com. Go for it. Great. Well, everybody, once you uh, get your hands on uh, Linda and Barbara's book, please tweet it. Please uh, Facebook it, uh, tell your friends, email, talk about it, talk it up. Let's, let's keep this as a number one bestseller for as many weeks as we can. Mm-hmm. Do it. Do it. Yeah. <laughs> Yoo-hoo. Thank you, Linda, for everything that you do. Well, thank you, Amy. Thank you, Lisa, for having me. Oh, it's just been so much fun. I was yeah. looking forward to this. Us too. Yeah, always a pleasure. Okay. Take care. Have a good, yeah. good evening, care. both of you. Thank you. Yeah. Bye. Yeah. Bye bye. Thanks for listening. Gender Critical Story Hour is written and produced by Amy Ham and Esme V. Intro music by Nahanda. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us your peak trans stories, how gender identity ideology has impacted your life, or just say hi and let us know your thoughts about the podcast. Write to us at gendercriticalstoryhour at gmail.com. Tweet to us at GC Story Hour. Take care, keep strong, and keep talking. Bye for now. Gender Critical Story Hour is sponsored by the Mythical Biological Female. I'm your Da-da-da!